All right, if you can find your way back to your worship guide, we're going to go into the authority of Scripture. So what is printed there this morning is, we're going to read a little bit more, so if you have your Scripture and you want to open it up and follow along, we're actually going to read First uh, Peter chapter 2, w- verse 1, all the way through 12. So it's a little bit of a bigger section. Uh, so let's just read that together, or you can listen uh, to the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we say together, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. So we are digging into Peter. So now we've finally eclipsed chapter 1 and we're in chapter 2. And we remember that Peter's whole premise, his whole reason for writing this, Peter, the kind of rambunctious, almost the daredevil apostle who gets out of the boat to walk on the water, Peter who's willing to say the thing that everybody else is thinking, is now getting some age on him more than likely as he's writing this letter. And we're now hearing from Pastor Peter. He's still an apostle, but he's also a pastor. And he's speaking to a group of Christians in Asia Minor who are discovering that the choice of their faith, their belonging to Christ, is starting to pressure them to the, uh, the periphery of society. They're no longer on the in crowd. They're being excluded. They can see it and feel it and know it. Greater persecution is coming. And so Peter has words to them of encouragement, of instruction. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so Peter is going to use a very uh, familiar analogy 
to speak some truth to this group of Christians in Asia Minor. And he's going to pull this out of Scripture, but this, this idea of a cornerstone is actually pretty common. It's just not in the Bible. So if you're kind of new to the Scripture and you hadn't read a lot of it and you're like, I don't know, is that just a Christian idea? No, cornerstones are just an architectural idea. Turns out they've been around for millennia, this idea of using a cornerstone to build something. So I got to preach, so I got to do some research, which I actually kind of enjoy doing up to a point, and then research gets tiring. But there is a point that research is fun. Now, some of you are, some of you like that. Some of you are like, no, I don't like to research ever again. I did that once, and I'm done. But here's a little bit of what I found. So I just started researching what does a cornerstone look like? When Peter says the word cornerstone, what kind of pops into his brain? What are the people in the scripture thinking about? So if you go back to Israel today, and if you're looking at architecture that existed from the time of Christ, these are a few of the pieces that were there. And what we're looking at is the basis of the temple, the second temple that King Herod had commissioned. And King Herod, he took the temple that existed and he kind of expanded it. And he made it something pretty amazing. I didn't realize this, but even though Israel was kind of, some people have called it the armpit of the Roman Empire, it still had some amazing architecture going on. And the second temple would have been impressive had we showed up to look at it. And the way they would build these structures in ancient times is they would use corner stones. Cornerstones were very important to the entire structure. You can see on the left, this cornerstone is like underneath, it's almost underneath the ground. It's supporting one of the corners of the temple. And you can see it's 11 and a half feet tall. So that's two of me, right? And it's 41 feet long. That's a huge stone that they would quarry out and put into place. And it had to be exact, right? If it's going to be the cornerstone, if things are going to exist on it, it had to be very exact and very right. Because the cornerstone was the beginning of the structure. They did this so well, as a matter of fact, that the stones, as they continued to stack them, according to our uh, archaeologists, one on top of the other, that Herod didn't even need to use mortar. They were so hewn, so correctly, and so good they were just able to stack them one on top of another because these cornerstones were so right. They, man, they knew how to build. I don't know if you ever built something, but to build something without some type of binding structure, that's impressive. These folks knew what they were doing. As a matter of fact, this is why when the Romans come in in 70 AD when Israel rebels, the Roman soldiers are really able to push over the stones of the temple because there's no mortar. And so they pushed them all over. The temple is destroyed, if you know your history. And so the only things that remain of that are these huge cornerstones that were essentially on the ground. So cornerstones are an idea we can get our head around. These were important. If you research other cultures and you dig up, archaeologists have discovered that it didn't matter if you were an ancient Israel culture or in a different part of the world. If you use this type of architecture, then you would make sacrifices they find oil and wine, remnants of these things. They find animal sacrifice placed at the beginning stone. Because culture or people, people groups understood that when they started this building, when they started this vision, they needed the blessing of, quote unquote, the gods. They needed it to be right. Cornerstone set the pace for what was to come. And if it was off, if your cornerstone was off, the entire building was off. 
Your entire wall, your entire structure is not sound. We continue uh, to use this terminology to today. How many people have found Cornerstone Financial Group, right? Like, we still use the term because we know it's important. We get the idea that it means something is correct. We know it means something has a sound foundation. And so uh, the idea for us is not foreign. If you go to a modern building, you'll see a little stone. It's really not a cornerstone, but it's, uh, it'll have like a date stamped on it. When they talk about pulling out time capsules, they're pulling it out of this ceremonial cornerstone. We still believe this idea that things have to be started in the right way for them to be successful, for them to be right. And so that's where we're going this morning. Peter is going to use this image. So it's important for us to hold on to that idea. Something has to be set correct for the entire structure to do what it's intended, for the entire structure to be sound. And so we're going to outline Peter like this. Now, some of you are in seminary, so Joe and Lauren, do not go back and talk about this. When you're in school, they make you outline books of the Bible, and they're really mean about it because you can outline wronglies, just so you know. You can outline a book and it be bad. I've gotten plenty of red ink. But there's other ways you can outline books and it be debatable. So don't take this anywhere else besides this room. But here's how I want us to at least think about this chapter, a way to outline it so we can get our heads around it. When Peter is talking to this group of people, in verses 6 through 8 is kind of the center of his message. Who is Christ? He is the cornerstone. That's kind of the center of his argument. He's the spot that we're going to start on. And then in verses 4 through 5 and 9 through 10, uh, Peter gets into our identity. Who are we? If Christ is the cornerstone and he's the spot upon which we start, what does it say about us? And then as Peter continues to speak on the periphery of that, it talks about our conduct. Remember last week, uh, Peter told us, be holy. He reminded us that God says to us to be holy as God is holy. And so he's going to get to our conduct for sure, but in the center of his message is the cornerstone. What's the identity of the cornerstone? And Christians, that is the, really the arc that we always need to go to. Often we start with our conduct thinking, why is this not changing? But the way we get to proper conduct is we start with the foundation. What is the cornerstone? What changes who we are so that our conduct actually becomes holy? Is this how I want us to hold on to it? Uh, And hopefully it'll be helpful to us. So here is the first uh, message that for me was pretty powerful when I thought about Christ as the cornerstone is that there's a gospel message found here. There's a gospel message found in this idea of cornerstone both for the perfectionist and for the rebel. Now there's lots of ways to sin, by the way. I didn't have time to write them all on the slide. So we're only going to talk about two forms of sin, which will probably catch most of us at some level. No one in here is a perfectionist. I'm sure that's just me. That's just my problem. No one in here ever rebelled, ever. James Dupree, never happened to you, did it? Mm-mm. Just, just those other people. But let's think about uh, what the Scripture says and then go to these two temptations for us. In verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious. So if God is the architect, if God is the builder, and God has chosen the cornerstone, then we know without a doubt because of the nature of God that it's perfect. That when God starts the building, we can be sure it will stand for millennia and for always because he is the perfect builder. So his cornerstone is chosen and precious. But for those of us who might fall towards this sin of perfectionism, it's not that the idea of perfection is wrong. As a matter of fact, the, the reality that something can be perfect is an apology. It's almost a defense that God is real, that we believe beauty and art can make us think of something that is perfect and ideal. The sin comes when I determine that my view of the world is the most perfect way. My perfection is what must be applied, not God's perfection. It's when I believe I can control and manipulate the things around me so that they fall just so, so that they fall into my vision of how the world is supposed to be. And you'll know if you're tempted towards the sin of perfectionism because things when they're not going exactly the way you thought they should, you start to get a little cagey. You get a little tense. You get a little anxious, right? Because your view is, you know God is looking. This happens to us as believers. You know God is looking and he's unhappy with your work. So you start to get frustrated. Is it just me? I'm the only one, right? No one else in here ever has those feelings, has that temptation to sin. See, perfection believes the law of God, if we're honest about it, if we're honest about what that sin does, we believe the law of God needs a little bit more work. The grace of God isn't sufficient as God gave it to us. Our sin makes us believe that we can be just like God, that we can do it even better than he did it. On the other side of that coin, it's almost just the same coin. You just flip it. It's the sin of rebellion. And to be fair, all of us are tempted into rebellion. Our father, Adam and Eve, our father, mother, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. Uh, and so it's just a sin in one direction or the other. If perfection wants to keep molding the world to its vision, then rebellion wants a whole brand new start. The rebel says, I need freedom. I don't need all this constriction. I need to do as I choose. I don't need laws or straight lines. I don't need right angles. Rebellion wants to follow what feels good in the moment. Our rebellious hearts believes that God sees us, but he doesn't care. Rebellion believes the law of God brings death and suffocation, constriction. But here's the good news. Here's the great news for us. Is that the gospel of this cornerstone is uh, hope and is a place of repentance for both the perfectionist and the rebel. If you are recognizing that you, like me, fall more to this perfectionist uh, way, then God's cornerstone, we must remember, cannot be perfected upon. A perfectionist who can live in anxiety and worry that God will never approve can look at the perfection of Christ. We get to rest that God has set something perfect that we set upon 
And the perfectionist is able to turn from their sin of pride and control and anxiety and rest in Jesus. We get to rest that the better architect set the stone and that it's his work that we rely on. And because of that, we can move towards a holy perfection, not a selfish perfection. Excuse me. And for the rebel, uh, God's cornerstone sets the course to life. The rebel who so desires to find life and freedom can now look to Jesus who offers both freely. When he sets the stone, there is flourishing. The rebel can lay down their sin of pride, of pleasure-seeking, and independence and rest in the foundation of Jesus' life. Guys, the good news of God's cornerstone is that it is, gives us relief and a place of rest. We need God, the architect, to set the stone for us. Because when we set it, it quickly crumbles. It quickly gets out of line. And so Peter, using this image of the cornerstone, he goes further. And there's really two uh, messages he gives us from the image. One is of security and one is of danger. If we go back to verse 6 and read the rest of it all the way through 8, and Peter, by the way, is quoting out of the book of Isaiah and out of the book of Psalms. He says, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the great thing about where we live in Appalachia, and how many of you guys take every chance you get to get out on the trails, especially it's about to be springtime, right? And if we're good East Tennessee people, we got to get outside and enjoy these mountains. I have not lived here my whole life. I've been in different places. And now that I'm back, I remember this place is beautiful. How in the world are we not out more often enjoying it? So if you live in Appalachia, uh, no, excuse me. Oh, no, my clicker died. Oh, there it is. Uh, then we have uh, in our minds like two, like we get these two images of rocks. Kind of on the left here, you can imagine uh, if you're going on the trail on a hot day. Have you ever done this, been in the mountains? And it's just like you're just burning up. Your pack's like sweating, your shoulders, you're getting a little chafed, and you get to this large stone overhang, and it's cool. And that's where you take your lunch, isn't it? Like you sit down in the coolness of that rock. You can just feel it. You just lay back. You just enjoy that space. And that rock becomes this amazing shelter for you. Or if it's a really windy or cold day, if you're hiking, you will find this stone and you will sit in front of it and you'll just find security. You'll find shelter. But at the same time, there's this other side to rocks that we're very aware of, especially if you've done much hiking around here. This picture on the right, I think Wonka actually took this. We were up on Grandfather Mountain, and the trail really just becomes bouldering. It's not a trail anymore. At some point, you're just slowly climbing like a small toddler over things much bigger than you. And as you do this, then you know something about these rocks. You know that if you stumble on one of these rocks and you fall down into the crevasse or you fall off of the boulder, it will be unforgiving. 
And the older you get, the more you're aware of that. You're like, they're never going to get me out of here if I fall off of this boulder. Like, that, they'll just bury me right here. This will be the space that Daniel McIntosh met the Lord. Uh, and you just, you get more aware of that. And so this image that stones can be both a place of security and danger should actually be pretty easy for us to hold on to. Because we experience that when we uh, get out in our amazing environment. And you hear this in Peter's words. Thinks about what he's saying. He is referencing out of Isaiah. This is God prophesying that one day he would set a stone. He would set a cornerstone that men would reject. Some men would place their faith in it, but some men would reject. And all we have to do is go back to the Gospels and think about what's happening at the moment of Christ's crucifixion. You have the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the political leaders, King Herod, the truly cultural power brokers, the Romans, those who had ultimate control. All three of these groups, it's as if they're coming and they're evaluating Christ. It's like they're looking at a cornerstone and they're saying, does this cornerstone, do I trust it? Is this a good foundation for me to give up everything that I've currently believed and start building upon this? And the imagery is that these power brokers, these individuals, they evaluate the stone of Christ and they say, no, you know what? That's kind of worthless. And they throw it in the reject pile. And for us, just in case you're like, well, I'm not a leader, I'm not the elite, don't forget that the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him. In our flesh, the response we all have to God outside of his saving graces is that we look at God's precious and chosen cornerstone and we reject it. We determine it's not worth us building our life upon if you go to Isaiah chapter 8 uh, and verse 14 and 15, this is where Peter's pulling farm. If we read the, the full um, verse, it says this, and he will become a sanctuary. So there's a positiveness to this cornerstone. However, he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The rock comes to us with two images, one of security and salvation and one truly of danger. There is a warning. Think about what it says in verse 6 and 7. It says, shame is removed. Shame will be taken away. You will not be put to shame. But not only does God take away shame from you, not only does he remove it, he says there is honor for you to believe. So God not only takes away leaving you at zero, he adds honor and dignity back to you. There's coolness and salvation and security in the rock. But for those who have rejected it, they will stumble and they will be broken into pieces. Uh, here's a unique fella. Now, sometimes we see people in history and we're like, that's not my jam. I wonder how they got away with the wigs and the coats. I don't know. I figure 200 years from now, they're going to look at us and be like, man, they chose really weird clothing and they had strange names. So I know you're judging him. It's okay. I did the same thing, but we're not going to, we're just going to avoid that. And we're going to look at this is guy's name is Augustus Toplady, and he wrote a lot of hymns. He was an Anglican pastor. 
And he wrote a very famous hymn. And if you grew up in church, you probably sang it at some point in your life. And the hymn is the Rock of Ages. How many people grew up in church and you kind of, you know that song? Like, you, like I sang it so much growing up. Like I can sing it at any point. You just have to point at me and you say, sing Rock of Ages. And I know at least the first stanza. It's actually a really good hymn. Here's what Augustus Toplady, looking at the scripture, here's the prose he was able to put in the song. It says, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be the sin of double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What's cleft mean, by the way? I had to look that one up. Not a word we use a lot. Thank you, Scott. It just means open up. The hymn means God's rock, open up for me. Let me hide myself in you. Augustus Toplady, he got it. The hymn teaches teaches it to us. The rock of Christ will either open up and be your place of salvation, your place of hiding, or the rock of Christ will crush us. This is salvation, right? We are saved from the wrath of God in Christ. And if we've not come to him in faith, then our foundations and the things that we have built on will be crushed by the Lord. All right, so moving on. So remember, Peter moves from who the identity of Jesus is, and then he gets into our identity. If this is who Christ is, if this is God's chosen and precious cornerstone, then who are we? And the first thing that Peter gets into is the priesthood of all believers. And here's the amazing thing about this. This is God's truth that helped transform the Western world. Now, that's a big statement, so let me defend that real quick. Uh, Priesthood of all believers was something that got picked up by uh, the Reformers. Everybody knows that uh, handsome fellow right there. That's Martin Luther, who, by the way, on the Wittenberg door in 1517, he nails up 95 theses. He's rejecting some of the teachings of the Catholic Church. And one of the pieces that Luther rejects is this that God has ordained for the priesthood a spiritual realm in which they work, and God has ordained for the rest of us a temporal world in which we work, in which we do what we do. And the significance of that is Luther says, no, you've got to read the scripture, solo scriptura, solo faith. The scripture is teaching us something different. There is not a special job for you if you happen to belong to the church or you wear the monk's robe, or you're a friar, or whatever, versus if you plant seeds, if you're a farmer, if you're a merchant. Listen, if you belong to Christ, here's what God has said of you. You are a priesthood. We read it in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. And then in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And the reason this was so significant, and the reason it was such a big deal, is because when Luther makes this declaration and says, hey, no matter who you are, if you belong to the church, if you belong to Christ, your worth matters. 
So suddenly the guy down the street selling cloth knows that God cares about what he does and that he has as much responsibility to read the scripture, to be aware of the work of God as the guy standing up preaching out of the Bible. And it's just as true today. The priesthood of the believer means that all of us have been brought into something new and all of us have been made priest in Christ. So the responsibility to the commission, the responsibility to know the word is not just for a few people, it is for us. We are God's priests. We have been brought in. And so what Peter does is he actually wraps in two realities. Peter, remember, he's thinking about what Jesus has done and changed or made new what God was doing in the Old Covenant. And so Peter takes two realities from how the Jews used to worship God, and he kind of brings them into one. He says Christ is the cornerstone of a new building that God is building. And what did you go to Jerusalem to do, Gary? You preached about it last summer. What did you go to the temple to do? To worship, right? To offer sacrifice. You went to find a priest. This is where they resided. So not only has Peter said, you're now the priesthood, you're now the living stones. You are the new temple. In verse 4 it says, you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Peter says your identity is you are now combining both of these things because Christ is now the foundation. You're not only the priest, you're the building. How many of us feel like a building? Uh, You might be stiff. If you had a bad workout, you may feel like you're kind of a sore, stiff building. Anybody watch Encanto? Anybody? Yeah. All right. Encanto, in Encanto, which is a new Disney movie, the house is alive. And it's kind of a cool concept. Like the house kind of moves around and brings your shoes to you, which I really would like if that existed. Like it does all these cool things. And that's not technically the image, but it's a little closer. Like you are living stones. You are now the priest and you're the temple. Why? Because God has done something in Christ. If you think about what Peter is saying, is your entire identity has now transformed. You now have this uh, ability, no longer do people have to leave and go to a place to find God's temple. No longer do they have to go find a priest. When they have found you, us, together, when they have found the church, they have found both the temple and the priest this place in which God dwells. And listen to what priests do. Priests offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Priests proclaim the marvelous truth, right? That you may be claimed. The excellence is him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You now are brought into something totally new. And I know we don't often think about ourselves this way, But when Jesus died and rose again and set the new covenant in place, we became what God was doing in the old covenant. We became a living temple. We became the priest. That is an amazing transformation. And it makes sense because now why? God is sending us out. 
we are now the chosen people of God taking his word into the world. And finally, um, remember that Peter is talking to a group of people experiencing rejection. He says in verse 4, uh, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. We need to remember Jesus was rejected. The best and the brightest, the cultural elites, those in power, they evaluated the person of Christ and decided he was worthless, and they discarded him. If you have come to Christ in faith, you belong to the one who was discarded. So if you experience rejection, if you experience being put on the periphery because of your belief, recognize there was one who went before you who had the ultimate rejection, God himself. All right, getting long. All right, so here's on the very ends. And if you think about Peter's argument, then it really starts to make more sense. Peter in verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 12 reminds us about our conduct. So put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. Verse 11, keep your, excuse me, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Think about what it meant to be a Gentile or a Jew coming into ancient Israel at the time of Christ. What would you see when you showed up in Israel? You would see the temple, right? You would see this amazing structure that King Herod had built. And you'd be like, huh, these people must have a decently impressive God. We've got a big old temple. Ah, I wonder if we can go in. As a Gentile, how far could you get? You had a spot and you had to stop. As a lady, couldn't get much further. As a Jewish man, eh, you could stroll a little, a little closer. As a priest, you go a little closer, but there was still a place, right? There was still a holies of holies that you had to stop. And only once a year did somebody get to go into there. Now, what has Peter taught us? God has set a new cornerstone in Christ. We're being built on that cornerstone. We have become both the priest and the temple. So now when people walk by, who do they see? They're not going to Jerusalem. They don't have to. They're walking by us. We are holy people who belong to a holy God. We've become the holy temple. I have a friend, his name's John Fouché. He mentored both Spencer and I. And John Fouché has this statement, and we say it a lot. We are spiritual people doing spiritual things. Like you don't get out of that. Like you don't go to work and suddenly become a non-holy, non-part of the temple. Like you don't get to go to work and conduct your business and not be a living stone. You don't get to go be a doctor. You don't get to go be a business owner. Pastors don't get to go to the office on Monday morning and act like they're no longer part of God's temple. It is an entirely new reality. God has totally transformed us and built us into something new. This is why he cares about our conduct. Not only is it holy and honoring to him as our sin is uh, grievous to him, But he wants those who watch us to see his temple at work. 
And that is our opportunity. We have become God's temple and God's people. We are set aside unto his purpose. All right, let's uh, uh, pray real quick, and then we're going to do something a little bit different for communion this morning. So if you didn't get a chance to get one of those uh, little deals, feel free to go grab one if you'd like to take communion with us. Um, Father, we are thankful um, that you have chosen a precious cornerstone in the person of Christ for us. We could not build on our own. We could not have done what you did. And we're just so thankful that in you there is hope, that we can lay aside this desire to improve upon what you have done or this desire to do our own thing. And we're thankful, Jesus, for your sacrifice to make that true. Thank you that you are our cornerstone. Uh, We ask this, Jesus, in your good name. Amen.